There are a number of indications that, from a halachic perspective, the mitzvah of lighting Hanukkah candles may be somewhat unique in that it's not an obligation on any specific individual, but rather it may be a chovas habayis, an obligation on the home, like a mezuzah. And there are some post who go so far as to say, for example, that if a person has no home or is outside of his or her home, it may actually not even be obligated in Hanukkah candles. Whatever the halachic uh, conclusion one draws one way or the other, there is a very significant hashkafic lesson that can be drawn by the, from the emphasis in Neros Hanukkah on the bias. And Perhaps this can be traced back to the fact that, at least according to some sources, the Yevonim, uh, the Hellenized Greeks, as they tried to persecute the Jewish people, one of the uh, areas in which they specifically aimed their hatred and persecution uh, against us was specifically in our home. The Rambam, in his famous Igeras Hashmad, or Igeras Kiddush Hashem, the Rambam himself suggests when he describes the events of the Hanukkah story, that among the various xeros that the Greeks uh, enacted was Shelo Yizkor Adam Es Pesach Beso, that we would not be allowed to close our door. Jews, Jewish homes had to remain open. The, the Greeks understood if the doors were closed, the Jews could fulfill mitzvahs, and therefore they prevented the doors from being closed. An earlier source in a collection of Midrashim known as Utsar Midrashim makes a similar point and explains that the purpose was They wanted to take away the dignity of the Jewish family by not allowing them to close the door and to have no privacy. So whether it was mitzvahs or tznias in personal dignity, the Greeks understood that the key building block, the foundation of the Jewish people, is the Jewish family and the Jewish home. And therefore, by attacking the Jewish home, the, Jew, the Greeks sought and were successful to a large extent at undermining our focus on tznias, on personal dignity, and on mitzvos. And from our enemies, we can learn that one of the primary messages of Hanukkah is for us to appreciate this central role of the home and the family, that Judaism is made up not of lots of people and not even based on shuls or bate midrashim. The key building block to the Jewish people is the home and the family, our enemies have always understood that, and we need to appreciate that as well. That is one of the primary lessons of Hanukkah. A number of Mepharshim, including the Beis Alevi, wonder why there is a unique emphasis on Mahadrin when it comes to the laws of Hanukkah, even more so than we have in any other mitzvah. After we know all, we know when it comes to the Neros Hanukkah, we have the basic mitzvah, we have Mahadrin, and then we even have something completely unique known as Mahadrin Minamahadrin, a third level. Why do we have that unique emphasis on Mahadrin, specifically in the area of Neros Hanukkah? The Beis Halevi himself, in order to answer this question, asks a second question, which is why did we have to rely on a miracle to begin with? Why did we have to rely on that single jar of oil lasting eight days? The Hashmonaim could have had a much more pragmatic solution, which would have obviated the necessity of a miracle. The assumption that the oil would only last for one day was based on a combination of factors, the amount of oil in the jar, but also the thickness of the wicks and how much oil would be consumed per day. However, says the base lady, they would have had a very easy solution. They could have shaved down the wicks to an eighth of their usual thickness, and then the very single jug of oil that they had would naturally have lasted for eight days because only a fraction of that oil would have been consumed by the much thinner wicks each day. If they had just done that, they would have had a much weaker, schwacher, as we would say, uh, lighting, but the menorah would have remained lit for all eight days without the necessity of a miracle. So, Beis that's exactly the point. The Jewish people uh, 
culminated their heroic victory and rebellion against the Greeks, they did not want to rely on a bitty evid lighting. Rather, they dafka wanted to rely on the most beautiful uh, and mahadran and hidur, uh, beautiful lighting. And therefore, as a result, to commemorate their focus on wanting to fulfill the mitzvah in the most beautiful way, we also have an extra emphasis on beauty and hidur in Hanukkah for all generations. And Rabbi Rabbi Rosenzweig loves to expand on this idea that the metaphor being that the mitzvah of Hanukkah candles represents maximalist Judaism. Very often we tend to look for the easiest way out. We're loyal, we don't want to do anything wrong, but we want the most minimal obligation. Hanukkah and the entire rebellion of the Hashem culminating in the miracle of the Hanukkah candles is all about the exact opposite mentality. We love Hashem, we want to do as much as we can. It's a spirit of religious aspiration and maximalism. The Hashem did not want to settle even on technically something that would have been sufficient if it would have been anything less than the most ideal, beautiful way of doing the mitzvot. Similarly, for all generations, the mitzvah of Hanukkah candles highlights our aspiration to beautify the mitzvot, to do it on the best way possible, hopefully serving it as inspiration and a metaphor for all of our religious practice to be done in the most maximal and idealistic way as possible. One of, if not the most familiar stanzas in the poem Ma'os Tzor that we sing when lighting the Hanukkah candles describes the fact that the Greeks gathered against us, there was a tremendous threat, but Hashem saved us. A miracle was performed for the sake of the Shoshanim. Shoshanim literally means roses. And the question is, why specifically in the context of the holiday of Hanukkah and the miracle of Hanukkah do we have the metaphor of comparing the Jewish people to a rose? What about specifically the holiday and the story of Hanukkah makes the rose the most apt and appropriate metaphor for the Jewish people? Rav Matasel Solomon and gives a suggestion which is already found in its basic form in the works of Rav Yochum that we have to take a step back and realize that the primary theme of Moshe in his life, really constantly repeating from the beginning of his career, especially from the time the Torah is given, is the fear that the Jewish people should not assimilate into the majority surrounding idolatrous cultures and societies. Apparently Moshe was really, really nervous that once he would die, the Jewish people would be enticed by the assimilationist and the attractive cultures of the majority uh, cultures and countries that surrounded us. And therefore, from the time the Torah was given until the very day that he dies, he repeats this exhortation. Despite Moshe's attempts, he's not successful. And eventually, shortly after he dies, the Jewish people sin, and eventually the process starts that leads them into Gullus. Seventy years later, they return, they're given a second chance with the second base of Megish, but again they sin. And come the Yavonim, the Hellenists, and their vision is to Hellenize Judaism, to blur the differences between Greek and Jewish culture. It was not a battle for the lives of the Jewish people, it was a battle for their souls. It was a cultural war. And those Jews who fought back, the Hashemarayim, were specifically fighting back to maintain the Jewish identity and specifically to challenge this point. The Pasuk in the second paragraph of Shir Shirim says, Like the rose who maintains its beauty among the thorns, so is my faithful from among the nations. And Rashi there explains that Jewish people as compared to roses because they live in a hostile environment. Just like the delicate rose is constantly in danger, lest the thorns puncture and pierce its beauty, so too the Jewish people is under constant danger and threat and pressure to assimilate and to replace its beautiful, unique Jewish identity and values with the assimilationist uh, larger values of the societies that surround us. And therefore, this is the most perfect and ideal and apt metaphor to use in describing the story of Hanukkah, because that's exactly what the Hashemunayim were trying to do. They were trying to maintain their unique Jewish identity like the rose, and it was specifically in support of that effort of the Jewish people and that minority that Hashem made the miracle to help the Shoshanim maintain their unique identity. As Rambam describes the story and miracle of Hanukkah, he emphasizes the fact that the Hashemunayim entered the Beit HaMikdash on the 25th of Kislev, and that's when they found all of the contaminated oil. Soloveitchik wondered, if that was the case, then really the holiday should actually start on the 26th 
day of Kislev. Because we know in general, when it comes to the daily lighting of the menorah in the base of Mikdash, the menorah was lit at night. Therefore, if the Hashemraim entered on the 25th, they would not actually have actually lit the menorah until the, later that evening, which halakhically is the 26th. So why don't we have a holiday starting on the 26th of Kislev? Why do we in fact start on the 25th? The Salvechik answer that we can understand this in light of the Ramam's more general approach to the midst of lighting the menorah, which even though included lighting the menorah, the Ramam very much emphasizes as the critical aspect of the mitzvah, the preparation of the oils and wicks, preparing the menorah for lighting that the Kohanim were involved with every afternoon. During the day, something that was known as Hatava Saneros, preparing uh, the menorah, cleaning out the old uh, wicks and preparing new ones and new oil, that was done earlier in the day so that they could light the menorah in the evening. That preparation stage, that Hatava the Ramam says, is the critical component when counting the mitzvah in general of lighting the menorah. Therefore, says Rav Soloveitchik, the Ramam understood that since the Hashemunayim were already involved in this process of hatava saneros, of preparing the menorah on the 25th, even though they didn't actually light until the evening, which was the 26th technically, but because the preparation started on the 25th, therefore our holiday of Hanukkah already begins on the 25th. Rav Lichtenstein, in expanding on this idea of Soloveitchik, explains that there are two dimensions and two lessons we can learn from this. Number one is that hatava, even though we translate it as preparation, but it really comes from Yilashon, enhancement, to make something more tov. And that is teaching us the important lesson that preparation improves and enhances quality. We shouldn't approach our mitzvos and our religious life in general as ad hoc, just kind of winging it. But rather, we should think deeply about things in advance, prepare for our mitzvah experiences, because that will improve the quality. Secondly, another dimension of Hatava is the fact that unlike the lighting of the menorah, which is effortless and brings with it immediate uh, gratification and immediate benefit of the light, the effort was, the, excuse me, the Hatava, the preparation, actually involved much more physical exertion and effort. Plus, it was a delayed gratification. They would put in the effort during the day, but not see the light until the evening. And this is a second message for us as part of our religious observance. Sometimes we can benefit from things initially and immediately, and sometimes even effortlessly. But most good things in life involve all sorts of effort and often involve delayed gratification. And being appreciative and sensitive to this is not only a message that is worthy of thinking about a Hanukkah, but a message for our religious lives in general. A number of sources, including the Rambam, when describing the terrible things that the Greeks did to the Jewish people during the period of the Hanukkah holiday, describe a phenomenon as upashtu yadam b'mamonam u'bavinosehem. They extended their hands, meaning that they stole our money and they took, stole, violated our daughters. If what is being conveyed when it comes to money is that they stole our money, the Greeks stole our money, they took it without permission, immorally, illegally, so then it's somewhat of a peculiar lushan to choose. Why upashtu yadam? That is at best imprecise. There are all sorts of easier, more direct and clear ways to say that they stole our money. Why not say the Greeks stole our money, they cheated, they seized? Why upashtu yadam bimamonam? So I heard a beautiful idea in the name of Rav Mordechai Shapiro Zatzal, as quoted by his son Rav Ephraim Shapiro, that upashtu yadam bimamonam does not mean that the Greeks stole our money, not that they stole money that belonged to a Jew. Not necessarily. In fact, as far as I'm aware, there's no evidence for that in any Gemara or Medrash. But rather, what it means is that Greek culture was nitpashet. It spread out in the sense that it influenced the Jewish way of looking at things. The Greek mindset and mentality changed the way Jewish people at the time were looking at their money. Instead of viewing money as a gift from Hashem intended to be used for meaningful and elevated purposes, a more crass, secular, Hellenistic Greek way of looking at money and material blessing 
in fact, became the Jewish way of thinking at it as well. Instead of seeing it as this gift from Hashem to use for good things, it became an end in and of itself. It became something in which people said, well, I worked for it, it's mine, I can spend it on myself, period. That is a completely foreign and secular way of looking at money and material blessing. Says Rav Shapiro, The ideological war, the battle for the Jewish soul that the Greeks waged, was not only in ritual ways, but in fact they got us to completely distort our view of the material world, financial means, and material blessing. Instead of seeing it as a gift from God meant to be used for good things, instead started using and seeing money as an end in and of itself. And this is very much goes to the heart of the holiday of Hanukkah, in the sense that it was not a battle for the Jewish body, but for the Jewish mind and the Jewish soul. And in addition to having a unique approach to various ritual and theological questions, we also have to have an elevated and more spiritual approach to material blessings and money, not seeing it as a crass end in of itself, but as a way of doing good things in the world as a gift from Hashem. In answering the famous question of why Hanukkah is an eight-day holiday, if there was only a seven-day miracle, since the oil naturally could have lasted for one day, so it was really only miraculous for seven days, one of the most common answers that's given by the Prichadash and others is that we add an extra day for the military victory. So it's seven days for the miracle of the oil, and one day for the military victory. If that's the case, ask the Primagodim, why do we celebrate and commemorate the winning of the battle with a candle, with a flame. What do Nehru's Hanukkah, that miracle that happened in front of a very small number of Kohanim in the base of Mikdash after the war was over, what does that have to do with the incredibly difficult battle that Hashem waged against the Greek army? We should have two separate forms of ritual celebration, two separate mitzvos, the menorah and the candles for the miracle that happened with the oil, and some other mitzvah, some other form of commemoration that we have, uh, we should have for the battle. Just like on other holidays, we have the Arba Minim, and we have a Sukkah, we have Matzah, and we have Marur, and the Karban Pesach. Why not have two separate forms of ritual commemoration, two forms of mitzvah, to celebrate what seem to be two completely different miracles, according to this answer? And the Divrei Yoel, the Satmarov, explains very beautifully that, in fact, when we talk about the miracle of Hanukkah, even the battle, there are two types of gvura. On the one hand, we say that Hashem gave the giborim biyad chalashim, the powerful in the hands of the weak. What does that mean? So on the one hand, there's the typical sense of strength, brute force, physical power. And that's what we mean, giborim biyad chalashim, the Hashemunayim were much weaker in that physical brute strength than the Greek army. However, there's another second form of strength, says the Satmarov, that of an inner spirit, of an inner resolve. When a person has those things, when he truly believes in something, that gives the person extra motivation, extra energy, and extra drive, and that can allow for all sorts of great accomplishment. For example, this is the story of every successful startup. One or two people with a commitment and a dream can accomplish almost anything. And this is what characterized the Hashemunayim as well. They had tremendous belief and idealism and commitment to their mission. And that, says the Satmarov, is not Gibor biyad chaloshim, but rather Rabim biyad ma'atim. Why is it biyad ma'atim? After all, in Israel, there are actually more Jews than whatever number of Greek soldiers there were. The Greeks were not all in Israel, but the Jewish people were. The answer is because only a few Jews were gibore haruach. Only a few had the spirit, uh, the strength of spirit and the commitment to join the revolt. And therefore, when we speak about gevura, when it comes to the holiday of Hanukkah, Regarding the famous machloka between Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel of how to light Hanukkah candles, whether according to Beis Shammai we start with eight and we decrease each night, or according to Beis Hillel, which is of course our practice where we start with one and we increase each night, 
So one of the explanations offered by the Gemara to understand the Machlokes is that Beishamai is of the opinion that we light Kedeged Yamim HaNech based on the days yet to come. As according to Beis Hillel, we light Kedeged Yamim HaYotzin, how many days have already passed. However, this seems to be insufficient because there doesn't seem to be a real deeper message here. We seem to be missing something. It seems really arbitrary. It, they're both true. On, the, on a given day, on the first day, for example, Beishamai is right that there are eight days yet to come and Beis Hillel is right that only one day has passed. So why does Beis Shammai focus on one, and why does Beis Hillel focus on the other? That we don't seem to really have an explanation of in the Gemara. However, Rav Zevin offers a very beautiful explanation. He suggests that, in fact, this machlokas is really part of a much broader machlokas and a pattern that can be detected throughout Shas and numerous other examples where you have Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel debating. And says, Rav Zevin, the theme running throughout is that Beis Shammai emphasizes the potential that exists in something, whereas Beis Hillel focuses on the practical expression and the concrete fulfillment of that expression. Just to give one example, there are numerous, but one example, we know that in halacha, dine mamanus, uh, in monetary law, possession is nine-tenths of the law. And whoever has the possession will have leverage in the court case. So what if a person is holding a contract, a star that the other person owes him money? And it's a definitive proof. But right now, all he has is the star. He has the contract. Do we view that person already as the muqsuk, as the person who has possession, and therefore give him the leverage? Or do we say, no, he doesn't have money, he just has a piece of paper. You only have leverage when you have the money. So Beishamai, as you would suspect, says, yes, the star is already enough, because we go by the potential, and the star is the potential to collect the money. Whereas Basil says, it's true that the star could collect the money, it is the instrument that will allow you to collect the money, but right now it's not money, it's just a piece of paper, and we don't care about the potential, we care about the concrete reality. So this is a broader theme, and that's just one example of that. Getting back to Hanukkah, Rav Zevin explains, so when it comes to Hanukkah, so too, on the first night, there is the potential for eight more days of miracle, and therefore, according to Beishamai, we light eight candles. According to Beis Hillel, in actuality, the miracle had only existed for one day on the first night, and therefore we only count, we only light one candle. Both of these are clearly important. We care, of course, we care about potential, but perhaps the fact that the halacha accords with Beis Hillel is a good message for us, that as important as it is to focus on potential, in the end, potential that is not concretely expressed is ultimately not really what we value. What we value is the concrete expression and the practical fulfillment of that potential. In the Gemara's famous description of the holiday of Hanukkah, the Gemara seems to completely gloss over the miracle of the military victory. The Gemara quite literally asks, my Hanukkah, what is the basis of the holiday of Hanukkah? What is the origin story? What are we commemorating? And in answering that question, the Gemara only describes, in response, the miracle of the jar of oil and the menorah remaining lit for eight days, even though there was only enough oil for one day. The Gemara completely omits the incredible, improbable, miraculous story of the small, ragtag Hashemunai army defeating the major world power of the Greeks. Many Mepharshim are bothered by this curious omission. It's true that in Halanisim we mentioned the war, but in the definitive account in the Gemara, we completely omit the war. Why is that? So among the many answers that are suggested to this question, the Meshachma suggests that in fact, this is part of a larger pattern of Jewish ritual, and in fact, deeper and profound Jewish thought. That is to say, says Meshachma, this is a deliberate decision, the emphasize the military element, lest people come to overly celebrate the suffering of our enemies. It was true that we defeated the Greeks, we killed some of them, and they needed to die. It was necessary. But we don't celebrate their death and their downfall. We celebrate our salvation and the benefits that accrue to us. He points out that this is also what happened on Purim, where the Megillah itself says, Why do we pick Yudal Radar? It's not the day that we defeated the enemies, that would have been at the earlier date. But rather, we specifically waited till we rested, till we had benefited, till we had freedom, till we had a chance to breathe. 
That's what we celebrate because the focus is on the benefits of Hashem's miracle to us, not the fact that necessarily there was a downfall and a death to our enemies. Similarly, the Meshachachma says, and this is his uh, launching pad of his discussion in Shmos Perak Yudbet, when it comes to the holiday of Pesach, there's a total emphasis on the benefit that the Jewish people had in being liberated from Egypt and a complete de-escalation, a de-emphasis on the fact that the Egyptians, many of them, were killed and drowned in the Yamsuf. He points out that already when the Jewish people were still in Mitzrayim, the Jewish people were already commanded not only to celebrate one day of Pesach, the anniversary of the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, but even the seventh day of, of Pesach, which is in fact the anniversary of when the Jewish when the Jewish people crossed through the Amsuf and the Egyptians were drowned. How could it be, asked Meshachachma, we were given this command to celebrate the seventh day a week before it happened. They were still in Mitzrayim, they hadn't even left, and all of a sudden they're being told that seven days from now there will also be a holiday? The answer is, says Meshachachma, because if we would waited until the Egyptians drowned and then gave the command, it might have appeared that we were celebrating their death and their drowning. But by telling us that the holiday is going to take place even before that happened, it subtly reinforces this point and emphasizes the fact that what's beneficial to us is that we left Mitzrayim and that we're free. The fact that necessarily along the way the Egyptians had to die, it's necessary. We don't necessarily apologize for it. It was necessary, just like Amalek had to die, just like the Greeks had to die, but the focus and the emphasis of our celebration is not that, not their downfall, not their death, but rather the benefit, the spiritual uh, potential that is accruing to the Jewish people with their freedom and their salvation from Hashem.